SAE features three drownings when a weasel went over an ice shelf during a test drive as a fog came on. Likely that incident won't make it into the first episode of this tranche, but if you listen to the second or third episode of any sequence without listening to the first one, there's something going on in your mind grapes that trigger warnings won't help. So I'm putting it here. I might remember to copy and paste it to the start of subsequent episodes, but I don't rely on myself for that sort of consistency, because this is iced coffee, and already more effort than I put into most of my hobbies. As I wrote the script for this episode, I was in COVID-19 isolation, following a positive rat, followed up by a PCR test so positive it started attracting chlorine ions. I was achy and breaky, but my heart and lungs are okay. And that's the main thing. So once again, I'm grateful to everyone who did the right thing in isolating and masking up and washing hands for long enough to see vaccines developed and rolled out sufficient to give me the double jab head start on the virus. I realise I'm privileged to live in a nation wealthy enough to provide free vaccines and to live among a community willing to do the right thing, even if the present federal government seems bent on ditching all the advantages our isolation and economic position afford us at every opportunity. I slept a lot, read a little, I listened to Triple J and knocked out this effort a hundred words at a time or so, as my energy and concentration allowed. While many of the expeditions recounted to date featured expeditioners from several nations, they all constituted projects in the interest of a single nation, a single business, a single backer, or a single member of the team. The Banzari incorporated three nations into its title, but since the New Zealand and Australian governments constituted tributary structures within the British Empire, the expedition can still be said to have served the interests of a single nationality, that being British white people, regardless of their actual birthplace. Keep in mind that Australians sang God Save the Queen as their national anthem until 1984. Australian passports began to differentiate Australians from other British subjects in 1948, but my father's pilot's licence, issued by the Australian Civil Aviation Authority in 1970, listed his nationality as British, despite his never having left Australia other than for national service in Vietnam. The Norwegian, British, Swedish Antarctic Expedition, the first actual multinational project in Antarctica, set a high bar for subsequent collaborations drawing together expertise and experience under multiple state flags. In the years after his successful and exciting expedition, Otto Nordenhuell tried unsuccessfully to get a joint Swedish-British expedition up and running. This push led to Australian interest, but no funds and the project languished in the expedition equivalent of development hell until Nordenwald's death under a Jotunberg bus in 1928. Nordenwald's efforts didn't go unnoticed by his fellow Swedes though. Among them, glaciologist Hans Ullmann, professor of geography at Stockholm University, who found much inspiration in the expedition idea Nordenwald propounded. Already a seasoned Arctic glacier studier, 
Ullman returned home from a 1939 expedition to Greenland, concerned that everything learned to date about receding glaciers in the north meant little if not backed up or reinterpreted by similar studies of ice in the south. The Nazis put paid to any immediate attempt to fill that knowledge gap, but Ullman studied the images published in the wake of Hans Richter's expedition, picking sites of potential interest for examining glacial recession from the orthographically rectified but poorly geographically tagged images. Ullman knew the glaciers in the Arctic were in recession and wanted to know if the same pattern played out in the far south. Richard's pictures hinted at a parallel, but it takes on-site exposure dating of the rocks near a glacial terminus to be certain of such matters. Coincidentally, exposure dating is the name of my Antarctic hookup app. Backers haven't been quick to throw funding at it and the project languishes. As early as 1943, Alman began corresponding with James Wordy, then serving with Royal Navy Intelligence, proposing a collaborative project in Antarctica. Wordy took this as an indication that the neutral Swedes weren't remaining neutral in picking the final outcome of the war in Europe, and facilitated Alman putting his scheme forward before the Royal Geographical Society in the northern autumn of 1945. While the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey and Operation Tabarin before it already established a British toehold in the cold, new project appeared to carry tremendous scientific cachet and tacit Scandinavian acknowledgement of Britain as having an important role in Antarctic administration, so the Brits were all in. That Ahlman's plans focused on the sector of Antarctica explored and named by Norwegian whaling interests and claimed by decree by King Haakon as Dronning Maudland shortly before the Nazi expedition led by Richer reached the pack, coincided with the return to the Norwegian Polar Institute of Dr. Harold Sverdrup, oceanographer aboard the North East Passage Transit of Amundsen's Maud. Sverdrup took up the NPI directorship after over a decade at the head of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography an initial three-year posting dragging out to 1948 because of the war. Ullman and Sverdrup collaborated in the field in Svalbard before the war, and the Norwegian found his Swedish colleague's Antarctic idea inspiring. Sverdrup's passion for the project saw his nation become the principal sponsor, mandating that their flag fly highest, their initial hold primacy in the initialization, and that their countrymen should hold the officer in charge position. Ullman, Sverdrup and Wordy headed up their respective national committees regarding the expedition, and with three times as many bureaucrats as usual sticking their oars in to help the expedition as along, everything took one third as long as usual to get done. No, wait, hang on. The other thing. Three committees means three times as many pointless meetings that could have been telegrams, and three times as many telegrams that could have been decisions. But that's the price of international collaboration, and one I'll pay many times over in order to subvert parochial cronyism and to thumb my nose at nationalism. The first paper iteration of the new initiative placed a team of six under Hjalmar Risa Larsen sailing south aboard the Norwegian vessel Svalbard with the Catalina flying boat. The plan involved taking off from the nearest open water the ship could place the aircraft and flying the team to the Voltart Massive. Using the mode pioneered by Dornierval test pilots and perfected by Bernd Balkan during the search and rescue operations over Greenland during the war, 
Landing the aircraft on the ice and taking off again by gingerly using the airframe's planing hull keel as a sledge runner. Larson would land the Catalina on the flattest, smoothest ice he could find and the party would dig themselves shelters and workshops into the fern, in a mode several parties already applied in Svalbard and on the Greenland Dome. The ship would aim to lay a depot at the edge of the nearest shelf ice for dog sledge mediated retrieval by the winterers. After a year, a follow-up flight would retrieve the party, assuming the Catalina didn't remain airworthy during its year out in the open. With the Voltart Massif only hazily located by the Nazi expedition, the ice conditions near the Massif difficult to ascertain from the aerial photograph prints remaining after wartime bombing destroyed most of the negatives, and Risa Larsen busy with developing Norway's post-war civil aviation sector, this inventive but sketchy plan gave way to a more staid initiative deemed likely to result in more data in more scientific disciplines and fewer corpses. A larger expedition with goals encompassing glaciology, led by Swedish interests, geology, led by British interests, and surveying and meteorology, led by Norwegians, took shape. Finished my tasks, back on standby. Page 3. Sverdrup demurred assumed leadership of the newly coalescing concept of a ship-landed expedition of 12 to 14 people in joining Maudland for two austral winters, passing the baton to Norwegian Polar Institute secretary John Sheldrup Yeva. Growing up in Tromso and working for several years as a trapper in northern Greenland, John Yeva served as secretary to the Norwegian Polar Institute when the Nazis invaded his homeland. He noped out to Britain where he served as secretary to the Norwegian government in exile and from there made his way to Little Norway in Canada, serving as an officer in the Royal Norwegian Air Force under Hjalmar Risa Larsen. He returned to Norway in 1944 to participate in the scouring of the Shire, picking up with the Norwegian Polar Institute once more in 1947. Jaeva wasn't expecting a big Antarctic project to land in his lap, but took to the task with aplomb, preparing budgets, drawing up requisitions lists, and sifting through the torrent of unsolicited applications that poured in from around the world, including some from former members of the Nazi expedition, who didn't get a look in because fuck Nazis. The shape of the expedition at this point comprised a voyage south aboard a Norwegian sealer, a landing as close to Cap Norwegia as possible, and a weasel-based transit inland to lay a large depot for subsequent summer sledging forays in the subsequent summer. Starter for 10 in the expedition berths, two IC and chief glaciologist, Walter Schitt, Professor Allman's chief assistant. Schitt studied physics at Stockholm University and in 1945 started what remains the longest running glacier mass balance study working on the Storglasjaren in Sweden's Tarfala Valley. The 3IC slot fell to veteran FID, Australian physicist and Royal Navy submariner Gordon Robin, recently returned from his year stint in command at the FIDS base at Sydney Island and previously stationed at the short-lived FIDS base on Laurie Island. Nils Jorgen Schumacher signed on as chief meteorologist. A native of the Finnmark, Norway's northernmost county, he learnt his specialty at the University of Oslo, his studies interrupted by the fucking Nazis, putting his graduation on hold for six years. He worked at the Oslo Meteorological Institute and for the Norwegian Air Force. 
Augusta Helma Lilliquist, signed on as Schumacher's assistant meteorologist. Lilliquist, already experienced in maritime fieldwork from several oceanographic voyages in Swedish waters, worked as a radio weather forecaster for several years, but his accent prompted a lot of complaints from listeners. I didn't realise it until I began asking Swedes how to pronounce Nordenwald, but the pronunciation of Swedish words can vary a great deal with geography, and Lilliquist's dialect saw him removed from the broadcasting role. Lilliquist made a hobby of studying polar history, publishing a book about Richard Byrd's four Antarctic expeditions in 1948. Chief geologist slot fell to Canadian Fred Roots, who worked at the Scott Polar Research Institute after receiving his doctorate at Princeton. Roots' high-latitude field experience arose in meteorological observations at Banff and in skiing, mountaineering and ski mountaineering in the service of Canadian government and private enterprise prospecting expeditions in the Rocky Mountains. Alan Rees, previously experienced in Antarctica as a FID, serving as leader at Base B on Deception Island in 1945 and as meteorologist at Base D at Hope Bay in 1946, signed on as assistant geologist, his post-FID studies having picked up the geological thread interrupted by a wartime need in the Royal Navy for meteorologists. Charles Winthrop Molesworth cheers, cheers, Swithenbank kicked off his seven-decade polar career as assistant glaciologist and at 22 years, the youngest member of the expedition. His previous experience included two expeditions to Iceland and Gambia, and he graduated from Oxford just a month before joining the NBSAE. His book, Foothold on Antarctica, served as one of two key texts in assembling the notes and script for this episode, the other being The White Desert by John Yeaver. What's up, boss? Just cruising, pal. Just trying to interrupt, but... Nah. Are you recording? Yeah, yeah recording. Oh, hello. <laughs> the podcast of, uh, of Matty Podcast. <laughs> Oh, uh, I'm getting, uh, I shouldn't have went over there, I've got jobs to do now. <laughs> <laughs> Does it? Oh, yes, nothing, move my help. Norwegian Nils Rur, a graduate of the same forestry course as gave Balkan his well-rounded education, joined as surveyor. Experienced mountaineer, Swedish doctor Ove Wilson, joined as medical officer, learning some dentistry, veterinary practice and dog driving in the lead-up to his departure south. Fellow Swede and Finnish Army armoured car mechanical engineer during the Winter War against Soviet forces, Berthil Ekstrom, who preferred to go by the nickname Nala, joined as mechanic. Peter Mellaby worked in the Norwegian coal mines of Svalbard before joining the Norwegian Army in 1941, serving as a ski instructor to British forces in Iceland. He returned to Svalbard to fight the Nazis at one point escaping up a glacier to avoid capture by a force of German marines landed by the Scharnhorst and the Tirpitz in an attempt to bring to an end the Norwegian clandestine disruption of Nazi meteorological stations. Mellaby turned his hand to fox and wolf trapping in the Arctic after the war. He joined the NBSAE as chief dog handler. Also a high latitudes hunter, Scholberg Nilsson joined as expedition cook. Eagle Rogstad served Norwegian forces as a radio operator in artillery batteries, aboard ships and in the air, before evacuating via Sweden, Siberia and Japan 
and on to Little Norway in Canada. Post-war, he served in the Norwegian Navy and Norwegian Airways Service. He joined the NBSAE as Chief Radio Operator and as an expert skier. While the expedition didn't come under the FID's remit, the influence of prominent British Antarcticans in assembling the Commonwealth personnel shows up in the form of Lancelot Fleming, member of Gino Watkins' survey work in Greenland, and John Reimer's British Graham Land Expedition, and by this point in history, director of the Scott Polar Research Institute, who interviewed the candidates. In the case of Charles Swithenbank, the interview comprised a casual chat before taking a double skull out on the cam. Fleming checking to see that the younger man felt willing to take his share of the hard work. Swithenbank counted their course running straight as he's passing a significant hurdle in his application process. If he's correct in that assessment, this incident constitutes one of the most British things that ever happened. I wish more of my job interviews incorporated opportunities to pretend I lived in Wind in the Willows. In addition to divvying up the scientific responsibilities, Yeva oversaw a national division of labour regarding stores and equipment. Clothing, three weasels, electrical equipment and trail equipment from Britain, buildings, stores, bedding and kitchenware from Sweden, everything else including a suitable ship from Norway. No one having wintered in Dronning Maudland, Yeva wrote up his stores lists based on the worst projected possible case, incorporating a lot of redundancy in equipment and an overabundance of food, enough for three full years for the entire expedition complement. And then he had to find an ice-worthy ship to fit the resulting volumes and weights. This stands the expedition out from many others of its era, wherein the organisers started with a ship and calculated food and equipment backwards from there, often leading to severe, sometimes dangerous, short-sheeting of the wintering parties. Sledging rations drew on the experience of the BGLE and the Tabarinos slash FIDs. Tents and much other trail gear doubled up between Norwegian and British models, each holding advantages in different conditions. The weasel amphibious tracked vehicles were of the same type as already employed in Antarctica by Operation High Jump, being late model M29C war surplus examples of a type you'll hear a lot about in coming episodes. One example serving French expeditioners at the Montdeville station in Adelie land into the 1990s. The administrative committees each negotiated contracts with the newspaper in their respective nations. Aftenposten in Norway, The Times in the UK and Dag Bladet in Sweden. Expedition members were forbidden from writing their own accounts of the expedition in order to provide a united front in representing the project, responsibility for the official narrative falling to John Yeaver. Yeaver tasked John Eng, architect of Little Norway in Canada, with designing the buildings, and the resulting designs went to Sweden for fabrication. Besides designing and overseeing the cutting, test assembly and packing of the materials for the expedition winter quarters, he saw the product of his efforts packed into three sizes of standard plywood crates. These he designed such that once emptied could act as storage cupboards, these in turn forming the walls of corridors between buildings, an important consideration if coastal accessibility issues saw the base arise on an ice shelf 
and suffer a similar slow sink below the surface as happened to the various iterations of Little America. When assembling Skubna, it is best to be two people. Yeva bought two 16-foot hunting dories and fitted them with iron sheathing along the waterline. 12 horsepower outboard motors propelled them, added to the growing pile of kit. A particularly large contribution arose in Volta Schitt's ice boring machine, boring as in drilling, because everyone knows ice is good at keeping itself entertained. The volume of material accumulating in the run-up to the expedition soon surpassed the capacity of any sealing vessel, but Lars Christensen's shipping concern offered space aboard the whaling factory vessel Torshofti, on which the weasels, dogs and much of the stores could travel to the ice as deck cargo. In addition to giving the dogs better conditions for their transit through the tropics, this offered the mechanically tasked members of the team five weeks during which to work at reinforcing the weasels' tracks, a noted weak point whenever people used the machines at high latitudes. With chaser vessels operating throughout the Southern Ocean transit, the factory vessel could also provide whale meat, both raw in chunk form and in high density powdered form, for use in feeding the dogs and in the production of dog pemmican, respectively. The Tromso-based shipping firm, Jakobsen Brothers, put forward a proposal for an expedition ship. During the Nazi occupation of Norway, German engineers used local shipyards to construct a trio of ocean-going tugs. Designed for Arctic service, their strong hulls featured the bluff, armoured bow required for breaking a path through sea ice. One tug sank on its way home from Newfoundland. The Norwegian government held the second, and the third remained in a shipyard in Tonsberg, unfinished. Jakobsen brothers offered to purchase the hull and fit it out as a sealer and expedition vessel. Jaeva jumped at the opportunity and arranged payment while the engineers got to work, fitting a 1,200 horsepower U-boat diesel engine and fitments to the fit-for-purpose hull. The shipyard got the newly named Norsel fitted out and seaworthy in three months and by late October 1949, it lay alongside in the harbour at Oslo. In addition to finding Yeva his ship, the Jakobsen brothers' firm also provided family members to crew the Norsel, Captain Gotham Jakobsen, a school classmate of Yeva's, joining as master, and his brother, Torgils Jakobsen, joining as engineer. Gotham Jakobsen got out of Norway aboard the Sealer and Ice Coffee Regular, the Quest, before the Nazis invaded, and remained at sea throughout the war as his nation's foremost free merchant mariner, receiving an OBE and the Lloyds Medal for Bravery for his efforts at fucking Nazi shit up while in exile. The Royal Air Force provided two Oster 6 airframes, similar to Ice Cold Katie as operated by the FIDS at Trapassi House. Helicopters received some consideration but the high maintenance to flying time ratio and short range of the types available in the UK at that point indicated toward fixed-wing aircraft. Helicopters can hover and place people in places fixed-wing aircraft can't, but those advantages come at significant range, maintenance and reliability costs, particularly when the best machines available are the Saro Skeeter and the Westland Dragonfly, a license-built copy of Sikorsky's S-51. The Osters received cold adaptations including a hot pot oil heater, cabin heating replumbed to de-ice the windscreen, 
Long-range fuel tanks, bumping the aircraft's range from 220 to a whopping 315 nautical miles. A cartridge starter, which used a large cordite charge in a shell, looking like a large shotgun cartridge, to generate gas that worked a piston that generated torque that pushed a toothed dog into the engine block that engaged its inverse toothed mate, geared into the engine workings, and turned the engine over. Lighter than an electrical starter system, and less dangerous than turning the propeller by hand. Though if the engine didn't start before you ran out of cartridges, hand starting became the only option. The RAF also fitted a VHF radio and a radio direction finding antenna. The Osters came with ski and float undercarriage rigs, fit to operate from ice or sea. Aircraft aren't much use without crews to operate them, so the RAF also supplied five personnel, led by squadron leader George Brian Walford. Schitt's ice boring machine underwent testing in Norway, the excursion offering Swithenbank an opportunity to learn weasel operations from the Norwegian Army support team while finding the working mean with his glaciological superior. Swithenbank also took a short and intensive course in crystallography, the practice of documenting crystals under a microscope to serve in Schitt's proposed study of glacial ice at increasing depths. Regarding sled dogs, Yeva arranged that the FIDs provide 30 from their carefully bred stocks at the Graemland bases, and that Norway provide a further 30, drawn from Greenland and Svalbard. The unfortunate FIDs doggos made two transits of the Atlantic, arriving in England during expedition preparations, no one having previously realised the Tors Havdi intended operating out of South Georgia, which could have served as a less dog-taxing staging point. Instead, the poor Mutleys went into quarantine on reaching England, received new inoculations, though several still died of distemper, and headed to Norway to board their southbound vessel. Polar veteran Soren Richter selected five dog teams from West Greenland, two individuals of which died while housed near Oslo in the weeks leading up to the Torshavdi's departure. Jaeva sent urgent word to the Norwegian Polar Institute's expedition to Svalbard requesting an emergency injection of more dogs, STAT, Norwegian Naval Lieutenant Carl Lundqvist responded with a dozen excellent dogs purchased from the Stora Norske Spitsbergen Coal Company and dispatched to Oslo at the hurry-up. Shortly before departing south, Jaeva headed to East Greenland aboard the Quest to relieve a Norwegian expedition working in the north. Jaeva noted this annual responsibility as standing in for a holiday after the hectic pace set by his NBSAE responsibilities, which is pretty cool even if it was a pose. For most operators, running a relief expedition to northeast Greenland would see them resting on their laurels as high latitudes hard cases, but for Yeva, it was an afterthought. The Torshavti departed Sandefjord on the 24th of October, carrying Mellaby, Ekstrom, Swithenbank, Nilsson and Reese, and the dogs, and the boring machine, and the weasels. Charles Swithenbank recounts taking advantage of unlimited access to foods still rationed in the UK, such as tea, sugar, butter, meat, bacon, eggs and cheese. The ship also carried an American engineer set to run the experiments in dehydrating whale meat after the tryout cookers removed the oil from it, something the NBSA personnel were very interested in because of planned experiments with a lightweight, high-protein dog food. The Norsell arrived in Oslo on the 25th of October and Yeva found the Jakobsen modifications and fit-out 
made the ship the best ice-appointed vessel he ever set foot on. With the Norsels plimsoll line disappearing below the water as the expedition stores overflowed the holds and filled the decks, the material for one of the prefabricated huts and all base furniture went ashore. On the upside, with one less hut, they only needed to fill a smaller volume with the furniture they'd now need to make on-site out of packing cases and dunnage. King Harkon and Crown Prince Olav paid a royal visit to the ship shortly prior to its departure and Yeva records some sage advice coming from his monarch and it's serving him well during the expedition, as anyone wanting to keep in good with royalty generally recounts of their encounters with monarchs and heirs to the throne. Oh, I met Prince Oxenfaber and he told me to wash my hands after I take a dump, and you know, that advice served me well to this day, don't you know? In this case it ran to, don't establish your base on ice that might float out to sea. Well done, your majesty. Fucking nailed it. Any clues about which way up humans operate best or perhaps some insight into whether or not water is wet? 17th November 1949, a group of relatives, journalists and Major General Risa Larson gathered on the Oslo quayside to see the Norsel off. Risa Larson gave Yeva similarly non-specific advice as King Harkon, though in this case born of first-hand experience. Beware of the Weddell Sea. The first leg of the journey only ran as far as London to collect the RAF contingent and the associated airframes. While there, Yeva received a telegram from the Torshavdi. Many dogs gravely ill. Calling on the expertise of expedition contacts among the Royal Geographical Society, the response ran, kill the worst cases and use penicillin. An inauspicious start for an expedition featuring large-scale dog-powered exploration among its plans. One Oster went aboard the Norcell disassembled in a crate. The null spaces within the plywood confines fitted out as a cramped but well-appointed aviation fitters workshop, the hole being waterproofed with pitch and roofing felt and accessed by a small dog door near deck level. The other airframe perched atop the massive deck cargo, ready for immediate action when the need arose, lashed down but still looking likely to go over the side at the first sign of inclement weather. Squadron Leader Waldron's aviation contingent comprised Flight Lieutenant Hugh Tudor, Sergeant P. D. Weston, Corporal W. B. Gilby, and Corporal Leslie A. Quar. Gordon Robin and Fred Roots also joined the ship in London, as did Crown Film Unit photographer Tom Stobart, whom Yeva forgot about, and for whom he had to find a berth and baggage space both being at a premium, as the ship fare bulged at the seams under its Antarctic tasking. The Norsel departed London on the 23rd of November and set course for Cape Town, arriving there on the 20th of December. Two international observers joined the expedition there, South African meteorologist J.A. King and head of the Inari, physicist Philip Law, both coming south to gather insight into establishing a station on the continent. King joined Lilliquest and Schumacher in the three hourly meteorological observations set to run continuously for two years, kicking off as the ship departed South Africa. Jumping back in time, aboard the Torshovdi, Peter Mellaby found three of the dogs suffering a disease in their feet, causing festy, open raw patches between the toes. He isolated the affected dogs, but four more huskies showed symptoms of the malady a few days later. 
The ship's doctor provided penicillin, but to no effect, the infections gradually worsening. Alan Rees sent telegrams to veterinarians in Britain, but no one arrived at a firm or useful diagnosis. The telegram came through from Yeva to euthanise the sickest dogs. One of the whalers dispatched the unfortunate animals, by this point their claws falling out of their rotting toes, with the back of an axe to the back of their heads, and the carcasses went over the side. Meanwhile, Ekstrom and Nilsson strengthened the tracks of the weasels on the advice of French explorer Paul Emile Victor, whose experience of the machines in Greenland indicated the factory supplied tracks didn't last long when working over Sastrugi for hundreds of kilometres, because he was French. Alan Rees fashioned lampwick dog harnesses of the type he used in fit service. More dogs fell ill with the poor infection, 18 showing symptoms, and another one requiring euthanising. Keeping the sick dogs isolated from those showing no symptoms and daily hosing out the dog accommodations were as much as the NBSAE team could think to do, while the ship's doctor syringed the infected paws to remove pus and applied penicillin. Reese and Swithenbank assembled the crates, taken aboard in flat pack form to save space, into which the experimental dog pemmican made from dehydrated whale meat powder and oatmeal held together with whale oil would go. Five tons of the stuff in total. The proposed rendezvous between the Norsell and the Torshofti ran late. The Torshofti, unable to begin whaling for Rockles until the 22nd of December due to a new rule instituted by the International Commission on Whaling, stopped in at South Georgia to collect its contingent of 13 chaser boats. The stop also afforded an opportunity for the NBSAE members to buy two tonnes of dehydrated powdered whale meat from the company at Pesca at Gritviken, with which to begin making the experimental dog food. Diverting west into the South Sandwich Islands added 2,000 nautical miles to the Norcells track, though with a possible payoff in the form of extra dogs. Peter Mellaby, Concerned at the large number of sick dogs among the 47 the mystery illness left him, organised for 13 healthy huskies to be held in his name at Gritviken, available on the tab of the Governor of the Falkland Islands, Sir Miles Clifford, the same administrator who did so much for Operation Tabarin and the FIDS, the new honorific having arrived earlier that year in concert with his knighthood. The Torshavdi began processing on the 10th of December, taking aboard a sperm whale while sailing along the edge of the pack. Swithenbank marvelled at the animal's complete dismemberment over the course of half an hour. The ship took 159 sperm whales in the following 11 days, before repositioning closer to South Georgia once more for the beginning of the baleen whaling season. Initial batches of the experimental dehydrated whale meat dog food recipe didn't produce a satisfying end product. It remained dusty even after the chefs increased the oil quotient and the first dog fed an experimental portion couldn't produce enough saliva to get the stuff down. The ship's dehydrating plant supplied product at whatever moisture content Peter Mellaby requested and subsequent batches came together better as he fine-tuned the recipe that John Yeaver originally provided though the end product weighed more than originally calculated. <laughs>
The dogs thrived on the fresh whale meat, though. Previously fed galley scraps, the start of the hunt saw them served with more meat than they could eat, many of them snarling at their fellow dogs from atop mounds of the stuff, gorged to the point of vomiting, but unwilling to countenance sharing the excess in case lean times came once more. With whale ships guarding their whereabouts from competing interests, Captain Hansen didn't broadcast location data to the Norcell until the last possible minute, making the rendezvous run even later than originally estimated, which is part of the price of piggybacking an expedition on a commercial operation. Meanwhile, back on the Norcell, Dr. Wilson began drawing blood samples to examine changes in sugar and adrenaline concentrations and red and white blood cell counts over time as the ship reached the convergence. Photographs of the good doctor performing this routine throughout the two-year span of the NBSAE give me the heebie-jeebies, because by the time I learnt to pipette, the piston-stroke mechanical option already replaced mouth pipetting. But in 1949, Dr. Wilson placed the pointy end of the device in the earlobe of a study subject and provided the suction orally via a length of rubber hose. Previously the most prevalent source of laboratory-based infections and poisonings the mouth pipette is a thing of the past in my nation, but it sets my mind to the irrelevance of time machines when you can travel to developing nations and see that exact process in use because the samples are needed and the money for a fancy suction device just isn't available. Embryologists seem to be the exception to the mechanical advance, claiming the only way to safely manipulate blastocysts is with the fine motor control offered by the human tongue and lungs. But I'm digressing. The Norcell reached the South Sandwich Islands on the 10th of January. A heavy fog and ship-sized icebergs prevented Captain Jakobsen identifying his target, but he found the Torshavti on the 12th, homing in on the factory vessel from downwind based on odour. On the 14th, sheltered from the swell, sort of, by a large iceberg and using two dead fin whales as fenders, the Norcell came alongside the Torshavti and I'll hand it over to John Yeaver to recount the process of loading materials from the larger to the smaller ship. Quote, Mandus Hansen, the mate, appeared at the rail on the factory ship's foredeck. A four-square toughened sea dog, a clenched fist of resolute assurance and iron nerve. His orders were wrapped out, their sharp tones reaching us down below. With such direct intensity did the man's authority make itself felt that I thought, if Mandus Hansen wills it, really wills it, he can calm the storms and smooth out the swelling waves of the Scotia Sea. He called down to us. Which package will you have first? The boring machine, Guttorm answered. A few minutes later, Shit's two-ton monster was swinging out over Torshavdi's rail. There it was, suspended from a thin wire about 30 feet above us. But it was not hanging steady at all. The heavy factory ship and the light Norcell did not by any means keep in step. The former rolled slowly and sedately in the groundswell. The latter bobbed up and down with swift, nervous motion on the surface waves. The whale fenders were jammed quite flat between the ships, and Volta's machine was descending upon us. Norcell was rising to meet it, but Mundus Hansen slightly moved the top joint of his right-hand little finger, and a winchman, invisible to us, gave one centimetre's twist to a lever. The crate rose, and catastrophe was averted. Hansen moved the little finger at the exact moment when the Norsel began her downward tilt. The crate went down again, a little more swiftly. 
The orders were rapped out and numbers of men hauled for dear life at the clearing lines. Just before Norsell reached the bottom of the wave trough, Hansen made a small movement as if he were flattening out a fly. The crate stood neatly planted on our foredeck, silky smooth and without one bruise, fitting to the last centimetre in the middle of the narrow passage between the forehatch and rail. The miracle had happened and it was the first of four. Now came the three weasels. Their delivery was by no means painless. They were put down on Norsell's foredeck, one up on the hatch and one on each side of it. Never have I seen a ship's deck looking so cramped. This was pure precision shooting at a moving target from a moving range. It was a piece of incredible harmony between two superb mariners, Hansen of the Antarctic and Jakobsen of the Arctic. They met here to enact a scene of high drama without rehearsal. Yes, all of them. The icy cold lad at the Torshov dish winch, the fellows who hung on the clearing lines and those who took the cargo on deck. It was seamanship of the highest order, almost impromptu yet matter-of-course efficiency, the concentrated product of everyday work. The reader must try to excuse my enthusiasm, but I'd seen so much expert seamanship in polar regions before, and this was a culmination. End quote. Among the stores deposited aboard the Norsell in this manner went the carefully prepared dog pemmican and an additional 20 tonnes of whole whale meat. This last arrived as a rain of bloody chunks thrown down on the afterhatch. One large chunk smacked the empennage of the top-loaded Oster and did some damage, but nothing the RAF fitters couldn't rectify. The 47 dogs, Alan Reese, Charles Swithenbank, Peter Mellaby, Bertil Ekstrom and Scholberg Nielsen went aboard by the more dignified but still largely dignity-free mode of a wicker basket on a pulley system. While the Norsell burnt fuel all day every day on its voyage south, gradually becoming lighter and riding higher as it went, the additional cargo and victuals and dogs and crew saw the Plimsoll line submerge once more. Low in the water and already running late in the season, Yeva opted to risk running low on dogs, not stopping off at South Georgia to collect those Sir Miles Clifford placed on layby for him. The Norsell made its way south toward the Dronning Maudland coast, first explored in 1930 by the Norvegia under Nils Larsen, and flown over by Hjalmar Risa Larsen and Finn Lutzar Holm. See episode 85. The Norsell entered the pack, making southeast toward the Princess Astrid Kist, with as much speed as the ice allowed, and stopping only to collect dog food in the form of seals shot from the foredeck, and some penguins to vary the diet of whale steaks a little and when the ice nipped the doughty Norsell, which occurred sufficiently frequently that the crew arranged ski races and football matches to keep them busy while waiting for the leads to open once more. Charles Swithenbank recounts standing on ice floes still affected by swell and finding the sensation deeply disturbing. Tom Stobbard tried to film the undulating surface but gave the effort away as a bad job when he lost his footing between flows. One of the Norsell's crew seemed less perturbed strolling across the rolling surface, herding a seal to the ship's side with a pole, in much the same manner a farmer might guide a cow to a byre. On reaching the ship, he shot his charge to add to the dog food larder. A dog named Boson, upset by the commotion and noise of pushing through the ice, leapt over the side and swam to a nearby floe. The crew collected the doggo, who seemed to think the break from the noise and the brief excursion all good fun. Someone shot a Ross seal and, 
Knowing how infrequently previous expeditions encountered the species, Yeva gave an instruction to preserve the skull, but Philip Law thwarted this scheme. Not recognising the seal as a rare encounter, he opened the skull with a hatchet to provide the crew with a feed of grilled brains. The Australian guest ruined both the skull and the hatchet and upset the cook by messing with his equipment, and no one thought much of the resulting dish. The expedition shot a further three Ross seals and saw a further ten in the following days, dashing all previous records for encounters with this species and making Phil Law's fucked up Seville de Faux, Faux Pas moot. And if you've listened to more than a handful of episodes, you'll have some idea how happy writing and saying that last clause of that last sentence made me. Fred Roots left the full primus atop the cold galley stove one morning, not noticing a crew member already lit the stove in preparation of John Snarby getting breakfast underway. The resulting blevy singed the hair of Roots and a seaman he was chatting to, shattered windows, blew some doors off their hinges and warped others such that they jammed in their jams, and set fire to the galley cupboards. The fire came under control, but Roots kept a low profile behind his far shorter beard for the remainder of the voyage, knowing if a similarly careless act allowed fire to reach the store of Avgas on deck, the ship didn't stand much of a chance. Nearing the end of January, with Guttorm unable to find a path through the pack to the Princess Astrid Kist, and the time pressure ramping up, Yeva ordered the ship head west and told Walford to make with the flying preparations. The RAF contingent fitted the floats to the pre-assembled Oster, and Guttorm turned the ship back on the reciprocal of the course of the last five days. During their flights in 1930, Riesa Larsen and Holm identified Cap Norvegia and, tucked behind it, Selbukta on the northern expanse of the Caird coast. At the time, Riesa Larsen speculated that the bay might serve as a harbour, with the caveat if and only if the sea ice departed annually. Riesa Larsen estimated this unlikely, but Yeva held it in mind as a possible site to get the expedition ashore, and set Guttorm to task getting the Norsal there, in spite of all incursions into the Waddell Sea after the eponymous one going badly for all involved. Unable to find a gap into the Waddell as the ship transited west, Yeva tasked the RAF with a scouting flight. The Oster proved easy to derrick over the side, and on the 1st of February, Walford took off from the water just half an hour after receiving the go. Every 15 minutes, the pilot radioed their height, airspeed, course, and the radio bearing of the ship. Dr. Wilson recorded these on audio tape and paper to provide a track the ship might follow if anything prevented the aircraft returning. No open water showed to the south, and the ship returned to its westward course after retrieving the little orange airframe, the entire operation only requiring three hours. With the reserve Oster still in bits in its box, Yeva organised a rapid response skiing and sledging party comprising the fittest humans and dogs, ready to make an over-ice traverse in case anything should happen to the aircraft while away from the ship. The following day, Flight Lieutenant Tudor took Captain Jakobsen aloft and found a gap that allowed the Norsell to begin an approach toward Cap Norvegia, making the first land sighting the following day. Walford flew the Oster south over Selbukta, reporting, quote, I am flying over Cap Norvegia. To the south, I can see nothing but ice over Selbukta for many miles in. 
I'm going northeast. Tell those concerned that there are scattered flows of pack ice along the ice front that way. This is a marvellous sight. Vast tracks of immaculate ice. It is incredibly beautiful. Anyone who's seen this has seen something worth living for. End quote. So no luck in terms of finding a landing site, but some nice poetry over the radio. Tudor flew northeast on the 4th and found four inlets in the ice shelf featuring margins low enough to unload the ship. The Norsell followed his heading. The ice behind the first inlet was too steep. The ice in the second inlet was too dense. But the third inlet was just right. With time running out before the sea began freezing, the expeditioners debated the possibility of establishing their base on the ice shelf. While not unanimously applauded, this remained the only option to get ashore that year, and Walford flew Yeva over the coast to select the best possible prospect. The ice shelf didn't offer much space that wasn't either crevasse riddle itself or cut off from the mainland by extensive crevasse fields. On the 10th of February, Tudor flew over the ice shelf once more during a brief window between snow squalls and identified a possible landing site offering access to the continent along a previously unregarded narrow stretch of shelf ice. A ski patrol investigated further. The area appeared crevasse free, the margin a perfect height for unloading, and the grade unlikely to cause the weasels trouble. With the time remaining before Sverdrup's stated no-go date almost run out, Yeva deemed the site acceptable on the Yeva deemed the site acceptable on the proviso that the Norsell remain on site until the huts received their roofs. The known frequency of blizzards that late in the austral summer made the prospect of losing building materials to burial or wind-driven scattering while camping out, with no prospect of maritime relief, a non-starter. The expedition cook, Shelberg Nilsson, opted out of the wintering party due to concerns about living a year on floating ice. The cook aboard the Norsell, John Snarby, agreed to fill his berth, committing to a year away from his home and family after half an hour's deliberation and a rapid-fire stream of telegrams between he and his wife. Leslie Qua, who took up training as a radio operator straight out of school with Imperial Airways, and then joined the RAF to serve as a radio operator for the duration of the war and a further four years, also joined the wintering team when Yeva identified the need for a second radio specialist, Walford making the necessary arrangements with the Air Ministry in Britain for Qua's two-year secondment. 16 hours a day for 10 days, the Norsell spewed its cargo of crates and whale meat and dogs and vehicles over the gunnels, and the weasels towed the materials clear of the ice shelf margin, while the dogs ran over, rolled on, ate and pissed into the snow, each avenue offering equal apparent delight after their long voyage. The RAF contingent unboxed and assembled the second Oster, and fitted skis to both airframes to begin a series of scouting flights in all landward directions, whenever the weather allowed, gradually assembling a picture of the best possible routes for overland exploration. Everyone found particular excitement in the discovery of unmapped nun attacks during a flight by Walford and Peter Weston, later confirmed by Tudor and Qua. That the Nazi aerial photography misplaced these substantial structures relatively close to the coast voted well for further dissing of the Schwabenland's cartographic output. With all useful scouting completed, 
the Austers turned to providing familiarisation flights for Mordheim residents, and then joy flights for the Norsells crew. The Weasels kept Ekstrom busy with repairs. At first getting salt water out of the gearboxes of two machines and dealing with salt water corrosion throughout the electrical systems of all three, but later mostly replacing fan belts and topping up coolant reservoirs as the machines and their drivers adapted to the conditions. Aided by the Norsells crew of Tromso Giants, the NBSAE established Mordheim a mile and a half shoreward of the ice edge atop 600 feet of ice, holding the buildings 120 feet archimediately above 220 fathoms of sea. The prefabricated structures went up under the foremanship of Volta Schitt, leading five of the Norsells crew with building experience, while Phil Law kept the construction site fed and caffeinated. Some of the construction mob kipped in Swedish army tents on site, but most personnel slept aboard the Norsell for the duration of the frantic unload. The huts, peak roofed to shed snow, enclosed a high ceiling central communal space with smaller storage and sleeping compartments offering standing room on their inner face, the roof sloping down to short outer walls that minimised windage. Insulation sandwiched into the panel sections minimised heat loss. Not long after construction, snow drifted over the structures, the neve adding its own counterintuitive barrier to thermal loss. The construction team's efforts gradually made Mordheim habitable, and with only two huts to complete, the original third remaining dockside in Oslo due to the expedition stores bulking out and setting low the Norsell, only two-thirds the time it might, though the resulting structures required considerable weatherproofing. As with the buildings taken south by Mawson's AAE, wetness on deck and temperature shifts during transit and the dry air of Antarctica warped a lot of the wood. The construction team applied a lot of gadgeting to get formally precision cut pieces to fit, still required a lot of draft excluders. During its two year use, Mordheim never completely stopped tripping. Yeah, copy that. never completely stopped dripping, causing many problems with electrical and heating systems. The Ostercrate went ashore. Already fitted out as a workshop, the construction crew simply towed it into position and secured it in the neve. On the 17th, with the ship largely unloaded and the second base hut nearing completion, the wintering party received orders to pack and to remain on standby for a rapid disembarkation. Sverdrup radioed the last possible departure date as the 20th of February, but conditions might yet see the Norsell on its way before that. The collective effort to see the NBSAE safely ashore and established afforded everyone a final day off to write letters home and to recover, a little bit, from the strenuous exertions of the unload. Movable furniture diffused uphill to Mordheim, leaving the Norsell bare of anything not welded to the deck or bulkheads. The winterers spent their final two nights in the warm berths of the Norsell before Captain Jakobsen and his crew departed unceremoniously, but for a few good lucks and a nip of something fiery, and three blasts on the ship's horn. The Norsell, riding high in the water, pushed north urgently, seeking to swerve the Weddell Sea fate of the Antarctic, ship version, and the Endurance. 
also ship version. The ship reached open water on the 26th of February after a tough battle with the pack, its rudder stock twisted by a charge of dynamite used in attempts to free the ship from a pinch. Captain Jakobsen set course for Cape Town, the nearest port with the necessary repair facilities, and the Norsell battled its way north across the Southern Ocean in this hobbled state, reaching safety on the 7th of March. Diaries of Mordheim residents recall the building and moving in phase as exciting and dynamic compared with the two years that followed, and each new innovation and development received record in rapturous prose. The first radio telegram to King Harkon VII went out on the 1st of March. Radio connections in Cape Town and, when conditions allowed, direct to Bergen, kept the expedition in contact with the NBSAE administrators and bare-bones goings-on at home. Once a month, each expedition member got to send a radio telegram to the recipient of their choosing. Ham radio operators in Africa and the USA sometimes helped pass news along in both directions. Corridors lined with crates and roofed with masonite connected the huts, stores and workshops in expectation of burial under drift snow. The corridor crates sat opening end up, partly for maximum structural strength, partly so the labels printed on the side showed the contents. Once snowed in, the Mordheim residents opened the crates with an axe to access the innards without bringing the roof down. Robin's Rawlin shed loomed over the rest of the little village, though set apart far enough that the radio-sonned balloons slated to emerge from it might miss the masts and guys of the radio hut. Realising their work required many deep pits, Yeva assigned the glaciologists to dig their first as a lavatory. Walter Schitt dug into an alcove in a snow wall of a corridor and Swithenbank towed the snow away until the Swede disappeared from view. A packing crate seat surmounted what became the shithouse because toilet humour is droll as fuck. The same poo stalagmites as plagued residents of Little America saw the glaciologists perform regular maintenance with a wire saw draped lasso fashion over the pinnacle before it reached the seat. In spite of a two-ton reserve stock John Yeaver collected at Cape Town, the heating system burnt through the kerosene at a rate likely to see the expedition very cold by the end of their second year on site. In spite of the cost and the managerial problems it threw onto the committees, Yeaver sent word north early of the necessity for a third Norsell visit. Better to front load the bad news than to wait until the actual danger zone. Sverdrup accepted the news without question and began making financial and logistical arrangements. What furniture the 15 residents couldn't transfer from the Norsell arose from retasked packing cases and Mordheim approached a state of equilibrium toward late March. All stores came under the village roofs and everyone settled into their daily work groove. The surveyors and glaciologists began planning and preparing for their excursions. Husky bitches whelped litters of pups a total of 20 making it to sub-adult by the end of the first winter. Seal hunters laid in the dog food. Meteorologists applied caustic soda to powdered aluminium to fill their radio sonde balloons, and the radio operators kept up contact with the outside world, though the floating ice nature of their home caused some difficulty in effectively earthing their antenna. 
Everyone took their turn in a rotor of week-long orderly duties, helping Snarby keep everyone fed and ensuring the water melter remained topped up with fuel and snow. The majority of the 15 residents spoke enough English to ensure no one's hovercraft ended up full of eels, but most members of the NBSAE made some effort to learn and use languages other than their own, Charles Swithenbank showing a particular aptitude for linguistics. Roar and Roots began magnetic observations in an igloo set some distance from the ferrous interference of the main buildings. Schitt and Swithenbank established a baseline of stakes set at half-mile intervals across the ice shelf to measure snow deposition or ablation and, and shelf deformation. Mellaby arranged the dog teams and established a training program to ensure their trail readiness and Yeva tasked him with coordinating field trials close to Mordheim to shake down the trail equipment and ensure the teams knew their roles well before heading further afield. During these trail trials, the Scott Polar Pyramid tents proved superior to Yeva's own design. The pragmatic Norwegian, rather than waste time and energy trying to improve his tents, chucked his pride and ordered everyone use the British units. Swithenbank's recounting of early sledge forays warrants quoting here. Quote, to harness the dogs, we had to take off our gloves to cinch leather straps. At this temperature, my fingers were shot with pain and then, shortly afterward, grew numb. It took half an hour of skiing to bring them back to life. However, my abiding memory of the day is of our vapour trail, or contrail, as aviators know it. The dog's breath combined with ours left a kilometre long line of fog hugging the ground behind us stunningly beautiful as the sun rose over the southern ridge." End quote. Going to finish up there with the residents of Mordheim bedding in for their first Antarctic winter. Sending greetings this episode to the crew of Barge 1808 who always make me feel welcome and who always have great snacks. Take care and appreciate your coffee and furthermore I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mission is to be avoided. <laughs>